then, you know, if you're doing 12-step program, I'll just say, you know, or whatever you're doing, just don't leave before the miracle happens. I mean, myself, I like everything immediate. I like it to be on my time, but fortunately, that's not the way our world works. So, you know, just write a list of all the things you like to do when you're sober, when you're clean, people you care about, because if you're an addict, you're an alcoholic like me, you will. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but somewhere down the line, you'll lose all that stuff again. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, Oh. Everybody, and welcome to another episode of TSP, the Share Podcast. And on today's episode, we have my good friend Chris Wright joining us. Now, Chris currently lives in Hartford, Connecticut, but we met here in Costa Rica when Chris was interned in the Costa Rica Recovery Rehab Center. And to celebrate his first year clean in sobriety, Chris is joining us on the Share Podcast today. His story is textbook drug addiction, narcissism, and another cautionary tale of drunken debauchery where if it wasn't for Chris's dog, Jordan, he may not be with us today. And now, with one year clean and sober, Chris is living a life beyond his wildest dreams. Again, he lives in Hartford, Connecticut, in a CSA, which stands for Community Supported Agriculture. Chris is part of a fast-growing movement towards sustainable living with organic, truly farm-grown fruits, vegetables, and animals. I'm proud to call him a friend. I'm proud to share his story. So let's dive right in. But first, a little share podcast news. Okay, guys, another quick reminder that I will be at the Seattle International Narcotics Anonymous Convention this year, July 29th, 30th, and 31st. 2016. It will be held at the Seattle Airport Marriott, and I will be the main speaker on Friday night opening up the convention. If you go to the Share Podcast website, on the right-hand side of the website, you'll see a banner. It's a blue banner that says SINAC 2016. Click on that banner. It'll send you to the page where you have information about room rates, about registering for the convention. Everything you need to know about attending the convention is right on that website. So again, I would love to meet you guys in person. If you can make it out there, would love to see you. Okay, guys, first of all, thanks so much for everyone who has helped support the Share Podcast. And for those of you listening who would like to know how you can help support the Share Podcast, let me give you a couple of ideas. First of all, the most important one, which is absolutely free, is to leave a rating and review on iTunes. iTunes single-handedly is one of the most powerful ways for people to find the Share Podcast. So to make it easy for you guys, what I've done is I've put buttons on the website, www.thesharepodcast.com. Go there on the right-hand side. The very first button reads, subscribe on iTunes. Click on that button. It's going to send you directly to the iTunes podcast app. And from there, you'll click subscribe and then go to the section that says rate and review. And please leave us a five-star rating. There's no question about it. iTunes is one of the best ways for our listeners to find the Share Podcast, especially when they're searching for it on Google. If you don't have an iPhone, then go to Stitcher Radio. It's the banner right underneath the subscribe on iTunes. Click on that 
and do the exact same thing. Subscribe and then leave a five-star rating and review. There's no question about it. This is the best way for you to show your support. I also want to thank all the listeners who have been clicking on the Amazon banner ad. Folks, for those of you wondering what's another fantastic way to support the show is by clicking on that banner before you shop on Amazon. You're going to shop on Amazon anyway. It's not going to cost you one penny more, and it kicks back some commission to the Share Podcast. We've already seen a dramatic increase in commission since we added the banner ad. So thanks again, guys. It's helping so much. And as far as being of service, you can also go to the website and click on the Join the Facebook Private Group banner. It'll take you right to the Facebook private group where you can request to be added and do some service. There's newcomers in there that are posting daily, old timers sharing experience, strength, and hope. It's an absolutely beautiful way to contribute to your own recovery as well as to those in the community. So plug yourself in, get into that private Facebook group. It's absolutely thriving. And again, it's a wonderful way for everyone to be of service. And of course, I want to give a big thank you to all of the listeners who have continued to give donations every month. Thank you guys so much for your generous donations. And for those of you that would like to contribute and help grow and support the Share Podcast financially, you can go to the website, click on the Donate with PayPal button, and it'll take you to the page where you can make your donation. And for those of you that use Sober Grid or are looking for an app on their phone where you can find meetings, have a sobriety calculator, connect privately with members of your local recovery community, or when you travel, connect with members in recovery in order to find a meeting, then you might as well join the private alumni group for Share Podcast listeners. So go into the Sober Grid menu once you've registered. Scroll down to where it says alumni group, click on add group and type in S-H-A-I-R and the Share Podcast alumni group will pop right up. And finally, I want to give credit to the Share Podcast team that is instrumental in producing the Share Podcast. Zinzi Gugu and Evelyn E who handle the audio editing for each podcast episode. Omar Hernandez that does all the social media cover art and Krista Wojo who handles all of our social media marketing. Without this amazing team, there's no way I could have continued to produce the podcast every week. Thank you, guys. I couldn't do this without you. So now a quick message from our sponsor and on to the show. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well as to the family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can easily be found at www.SoberNation.com. Sober Nation is putting recovery on the map. And finally, would you like to receive the most popular AA daily devotions free in one distribution? Transitions Daily delivers daily devotions from the 24 hours a day, AA thought for the day, daily reflections, big book quote, just for today, as Bill sees it, plus more. You can get our distribution daily via email, private Facebook group, or Twitter. Go to dailyaaemails.com for more information. And don't forget to share dailyaaemails.com with friends in meetings and with sponsees in recovery. Now back to the show. 
Hey, Chris, thanks for joining us. Hey, Omar, how's it going? Dude, it's going fantastic, man. It's great to hear your voice, brother. Uh, Likewise. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm excited. I'm excited. So, folks, today we have Chris Wright joining us on the Share Podcast. He's a good friend of mine. We met in Costa Rica when he was at Costa Rica Recovery in rehab. And now Chris has recently celebrated one year clean and sober. And uh, the plan was six months ago that... uh, on his bucket list was at one year he's going to be on the share podcast and here we are this is cool yeah i think yeah we talked about it you told me about some other guys that you were in contact with about that and i said uh i don't know it sounded like a good goal keeping people off the streets you know that's that's the goal man that's the goal whatever it takes dude seriously whatever whatever yeah yeah, whatever keeps you clean expect a miracle all right so um, I, I have had an opportunity to hear a little bit of your story, uh, and it's, it's heavy, man. I, I know that, uh, that your parents have been pulling for you and, uh, you know, I'm sure reconnecting with them has been, you know, a, a blessing. So, so I want to hear all about that kind of stuff. So sure. let's dive into your story, but first let's talk about what you are doing today. Take us into your normal daily routine, including recovery. All right. I, I try to center myself as much as I can in the morning. I'm very much kind of a, I guess once I'm off, it's like a, you know, a cup of coffee and go kind of person. So it's important to me. And I don't know, some people get down on their knees and pray or whatever. Um, you know, whenever I'm conscious of it, I'll just take a moment. Uh, pretty much what I do is I ask a higher power for strength just to kind of do, do their will. And, um, and then I kind of move forward with my day. You know, right now I'm, I'm working, full-time Monday through Friday, so I, I do that. Um, I'm an organic biodynamic farmer, so I do pretty uh, labor-intensive work and uh, usually come home exhausted. I have a dog who's like pretty much my child, and I, uh, <laughs> I, I, I hike, walk with him even though I'm exhausted every day. You know, eat something, put something in my body, and I, and I usually hit a night meeting Right now, I'm trying to do like three nights a week, which is good for me. And then I hit both weekends whenever possible. Um, it's it's been a kind of a transitional phase. I wasn't, and you'll hear more about it, but I wasn't working uh, full time through a, a large majority of my first year, which was kind of a blessing. I was able to, you know, I, I hit well over 365 meetings in my first year, which I think was quite pivotal. Yep. Yeah, I just kind of had to hear the same things until they clicked. <laughs> <laughs> I know the feeling. Yeah, that's what that means. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's exactly how it works. That's exactly how it works. So now tell us a little bit, because we were talking a little bit about this new gig. And since I'm totally now into this whole organic movement, save the planet kind of a deal. <laughs> all right. Uh, a big, big fan of Rich Roll. Who is a is also a recovering alcoholic, uh, a vegan, uh, you know, a triathlon athlete, like you know, it's just a badass. So, so now I've quit eating red meat and chicken and dairy. So, tell us about this job and what you're doing because it, it actually, you know, it, it's very exciting to me. Yeah, um, yeah. So, what I'm doing is I'm working on a small local farm. Um, it's actually within the area, and it's it's called a it's called community supported agriculture. A CSA essentially is mainly how this farm makes money. Um, people within the community or around the the state I live in will essentially purchase or 
make an investment, they'll pay X amount of dollars. Like I think it's either 400, 500 or 700, depending on how much produce you want to receive on a weekly basis. And throughout the months of June through October, you essentially, you come to the farm once a week, you get to kind of, you can see where your, your produce is coming from, meet the farmers that are slaving over these things. And, uh, Essentially, you get a you get a quantity, a certain whatever you pay for, you know, certain amount of pounds of produce you can take from our farm and bring home each week. So everything that we do is totally organic. Um, so we don't use any pesticides. It's all natural. You know, we fertilize with uh, a lot of fish oils and stuff, and everything is done by hand. You know, today we were. Uh, <laughs> picking rocks out, out of a field and uh, cutting down a bunch of vines, which uh, a can of Roundup would have been real good for. But, <laughs> it's, but it's not, you know, that's not what it's about. But it's been great, uh, you know, actually at the interview, I think the, one of the farmers said, uh, you know, farming is really about something greater than yourself. And I was, that wasn't a, you know, a God shot then. <laughs> I don't know what it is. So it's, it's, been, sure. it's been a good match. It's, you know, it's it's rewarding work to see the, see the fruits of your labor and see other people enjoy it and you know know where know where your next meal is coming from exactly where it came from so where is this located this is in salem connecticut which is very close to me um it's just up the road actually so i got a nice little four minute commute so i just uh i again it was totally by chance i was actually spending an absurd amount of money on organic produce myself and researching uh csas for the for myself to essentially purchase and get my produce from and i just happened to see that they had they were hiring their 2016 crew and myself having no background in that you know just kind of took a shot in the dark and um it's been a good match thus far dude that's hp baby that's totally hp man when your eyes are open (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and CSA, what does that stand for again? Uh, community supported agriculture. Dude, I love it. I think I think my wife, when she hears this interview, she's going to say we're moving to Connecticut. Uh-huh. Like this, that's the, the, but that's where that's where I'm moving towards. That's what I want to be. I want to be able to go and see you know how my produce is growing, and for my own eyes, that they're not using pesticides. It's totally organic, and yeah. and just get back to what it was like. You know what? Not yeah. even w- what. 200 years ago when it was actually farming yeah yeah it wasn't all mass produced it's uh yeah it's pretty cool to see where it's all coming from and there's just there's a lot that you can do with it and you know we raise our own cattle for slaughter so you know where your meat's coming from you get your eggs um and you know nutrition diet and exercise has been uh pretty pivotal in my recovery so although the the pay was is not you know i had to just kind of let that be for now because uh, <laughs> yeah you know farmers not driving rolling up in a rolls royce um, no, no. but uh <laughs> but there's something to be said for that and you know it's uh i think i'm much happier than i was in my last line of work now do you get all the now working there you get a salary but do you also get to participate or partake in the produce at a discounted rice <laughs> yeah i i can uh I can take up to 15 pounds of vegetables a week, which no! is, believe it or not, we, we go through it. And uh, yeah, I could take that, eggs, 
and uh, a certain allotment of the of the beef because it is kind of rationed and I'm sure we always got to make sure our our you know our uh, community is served before we before we you know if there's a bunch if there's a new crop in it tends to be popular we'll have to wait till the following week but yeah we definitely reap the benefits of our own work this is so cool man I absolutely love it I'm actually jealous <laughs> you know I mean I'm not. You know, wouldn't have been today. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is, I, when I was a kid growing up, my dad used to make me do all the yard work. So I'd yeah. have to go out there and and pick the weeds and dig around, and I just hated it. And I swore I would never do yard work ever again. Like when I was an adult, my job would not be outdoors. I was going to be an office person, and I've been an office person for for you know twenty some odd years, and uh, now. It's like, man, how wonderful would it be to just stick my hand in the earth, right? Like, I don't know about moving boulders and getting rid of weeds and all that shit. <laughs> but, you know, but just being out and, you know, what it was like, again, what it was like before the Industrial Revolution, before McDonald's, before high fructose corn syrup came into the picture. Like, what yeah. was life like when you could just go out there and just eat from the land and you knew that you were going to get all the nutrients you needed. You know, that's, that's, that's pretty, that's pretty insane. So cool cool feeling. Uh, it's a tough, I mean, it's definitely tough to, uh, it takes a lot of courage, I think, to, to, to go through with that in this day and age. Oh yeah. No question. Uh, Farmers that run it are very cool people and, you know, pretty admirable. It's a very healthy environment. I dig it. I dig it. All right, man. Well, let's start talking about some drug addiction. All right. <laughs> so how much clean time do you have, and when is your anniversary date? Uh, my anniversary date is March 9th of 2015, so I'm coming up on a couple of days here in 13 months. Yeah. yeah. Outstanding. 13. Dude, yeah. that's awesome. And tell us, Chris, how old you were the first time you drank and used drugs, or used drugs, and more importantly, how did they make you feel? Uh, I think... I had to be 14 or 15 years old uh, first time I drank or drugged. I mean, I just remember, you know, the feeling of, all right, like, this is it. Like, this is what I needed. And how can I get more? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was kind of just chasing that that feeling for the next 14, 15 years. Wow. That's just, that's wild, dude. <laughs> 14, 15 years. And you're so young. How old are you now? Uh, I'm, I, yeah, everyone says that, but I'm, I'm 29. I just turned 29. I'm gonna, next year will be the dirty 30. So, uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. You definitely look like you're in your mid twenties max. Yeah. Know, yeah. So. Everyone, everyone's, I still get ID to movies and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know. I must've, yeah, it was the crack. <laughs> <laughs> My secret. That's the secret weapon, huh? Yeah. Wow. That, there's a first for everything, huh? I noticed, like us addicts, we have, uh, yeah, we do kind of have like a resilience ease to us. So <laughs> there's no question about it. All right, buddy, you're warmed up, Chris. So it's All time right. for me to turn this show over to you, man. It's time for you to tell us the battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life when you hit rock bottom. And finally, your journey into recovery up until today. So, Chris, take it away. Great. All right. So, I'm going to try to kind of share, uh, you know, what it's like, what happened, and uh, what it's like now. You know, I grew up in a middle 
middle class household. My mother was an immigrant from Eastern Europe, from Czechoslovakia, and my father's side of the family was European. I was the product of an alcoholic household. Um, my father struggled with alcoholism and met my mother, and they were in Texas. And kind of, you know, the the story that I get is that, you know, he had his own demons. And um, I'm a middle child. I have an older brother, younger sister. So she was with child with my older brother and uh, basically kind of said, like, you need to get your act together or taking the kid. At that point, shaped up, um, joined a 12-step group, and was stone sober for about the next you know 20 years. I don't think I saw my father drink until I had actually gotten into college or in high school. He was, you know, he participated in the program, but I think later just kind of did it on his own. Right. Um, and you know, it's not, <laughs> it's not, not his story, my story, but there's some background, you know, so we grow up in New Britain, Connecticut, which is this little, they call it little Poland. It's a huge place for immigrants from Eastern Europe. So I was brought up Russian Orthodox, which is, uh, best way I could describe it is if you've seen like my big fat Greek wedding, <clears throat> that was like my church service every, oh. every Sunday, two, <laughs> hours, two hours. I Lots love that movie, man. <laughs> yeah, lots of lots of uh, gold incense that would choke you up. Russian ladies, and they would give you candy. So you know, I went. My mother would take us <clears throat> every weekend, and um, you know, that's more so. I think is it, it was what her father did, and her her mother did, and uh, it was kind of a tradition. It was important to my grandfather, you know, that we went. So we continued to go, and that was like my first impression of religion was the. Why does everyone else get to go to this forty-five minute mass? And like, here I am, two hours, and I don't even speak this language. And you no, know, like, <laughs> everyone thinks I'm super weird. So we grew up there for a while, and it was kind of a rough neighborhood. At some point, there was like a couple. Of, there was a stabbing and a shooting within the same week in front of the complex that we lived in. And at that point, um, parents made a decision that they. Although probably above their means, they decided to move out, and we moved to the we moved to the boonies, like the woods. They they told us there wouldn't be any convenience stores, any Seven Elevens, etc. And they weren't lying; like we literally <laughs> moved to the woods. So so uh, so that's where my childhood kind of began. I think I was like four years old at the time, and you know, I moved right before kindergarten. But it was interesting. A couple of my like most uh, influential friends were actually they grew up in the same town back in Little Poland with me, and without speaking to each other. And obviously, like kindergartners can't plot these things together. So, but we just unknowingly all moved to the same town together. And one day we were like at a playscape. Hey, what are you doing here? <laughs> and so it was very crazy. But uh, but it's cool and. These are still friends I've been able to maintain today. So maybe that was higher power working in my life. So we moved to East Adam, which is the sticks. You know, I start I start my grade school there. I think I entered like the first grade. Probably to my own doing. I wasn't that close with my brother. He kind of I don't know, he always kinda of saw me as trying to best him and uh, you know, being annoying. So we never really, you know, for only being two, three years apart, we we never really had uh a great connection. So we continued to grow up in this town. Uh, I met a lot of 
good friends. Uh, I, I had a core central group of friends, but uh, you know, when I got to high school, I I went to a different high school. Like a high school in town was not that great, and I was looking around at a bunch of them, and there was one I could afford. It it was a a Catholic high school about forty five minutes away. So that's where I uh, ended up enrolling for high school. So that kind of took me away from, you know, everyone uh, that I kind of knew in this small town growing up. Just to backtrack a little, I guess, uh, you know, in middle school and in grade school, you know, I was identified. I was put into this TAG program, which sounds ridiculous, and it stands for Talented and Gifted. And, you know, kind of just like, yeah, they have these things. And you know, I kind of just like put little Chris on his pedestal and he's walking around like I own this fucking town and, you know, like, look at me, look at me. And, you know, what I would, I'd win the awards. Um, school was never challenging for me throughout grade school and middle school. And kind of as, as I just described with my brother, like, I learned that I could try half-heartedly and get exceptional results. And like, this was great. You know, so long as I was bringing home the grades, then that was that was like the family's indication that you know everything was okay. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of how they monitored it. And you know, as I as I matured, as I grew up, you know, I I kind of used that and stretched that to my advantage more so and more so. I also got involved in soccer very early. I became very good at soccer. Allowed me to travel. I was in the Olympic development program. You know, just uh, lots of things feeding my ego and people telling me that I'm this and that and a bag of chips. But, you know, I was a, I was a, I was a big fish in a small pond. And uh, anyways, so moving along, I go to high school. I go to this place called Xavier. And it's a Catholic kind of like preparatory school. And, and that's like, you know, the whole wear ties. You can't have your hair a certain length, etc. which – all things I kind of struggle with, like, why does God care if I have long hair? <laughs> like, I like asking questions like that. Right. Or, you know, God said I didn't have to wear a tie today. Like, it's all good. So instead of, in, in, in lieu of detention, they had these things called jugs, which were, which stand for, I'm not making this stuff up, but they, it stands for justice under God. And <laughs> I used to get sent to there and then, you know, like I kept getting. Um, <laughs> don't you see the irony in this, dude? This under God, God's gonna, you know, he's gonna punish me however he wants to. But uh, terrible. Yeah. The <laughs> so we sat in a room and like stared at a wall for thirty minutes, and this was my justice under God. This kind of just uh, kind of fortified that wall I was putting up that I had begun to have against faith and religion at an early age. You know earlier because it was different and it was just so excessive and like the long services and a language I didn't really, you know, get the gist of. And then now it was, you know, the things that scared me were like, you know, I'd be this, this kid sitting behind me would be cheating off my Spanish exam. And then he'd just be like sitting up, sitting down, (laughs) taking the blood of Christ. Like, do you even know what you're doing or saying right now? It just it scared me. It all felt very cultish when I would like be at the student masses, and more so, just not. They only allowed like five percent non-Catholic denomination into the school. That was actually a question they could ask. You know, I just kind of like again, just kind of fed my ego. Like I'm different, and 
y'all are drinking the Kool-Aid and <laughs> I'm not having any of it. So, so, you know, I just, you know, I grew away from faith. I grew away from religion. I continued in soccer and to excel in high school. Um, again, just kind of trying half-heartedly. Um, they got me into tougher classes, the quote unquote honors program. Still, I never really challenged myself because I just figured, you know, if I'm bringing home A's, then because of that, again, uh, I, that was kind of the progress report back home and, you know, everything was, was good. Um, so in high school, high school, uh, freshman year, I think is when I had first drink, first drugs. Uh, I think so my buddy went to prep school again. He got to go to one of the prep schools I, I, I got into, but I couldn't afford. So he comes home from prep school with like a mason jar full of rum or something. <laughs> and we were all sleeping over at my buddy's house and got this mason jar full of rum. I, nasty. I'm not much of a rum drinker, but whatever. <laughs> so we're passing it around and. You know, I just remember just, you know, tasting it and not liking it, but oh, I want to get drunk. I want to feel this. And I'm pretty sure I puked my brains out that night. And <laughs> that didn't deter me. I just like, you know, like the next week and it's like, can we get more? You know, shortly thereafter, within I'd say a month, I was seeking a way to find pot. And sure enough, I found it. I was I went to some like birthday party where a band was playing. I was like, well, bands always have pot, right? And <laughs> I go talk to the bass player after like a set break, and sure enough, there we go. So I started smoking weed, like a lot of weed, in high school. So again, grades are good, you know, everything looks okay. But yeah, I smoke. I become like a habitual weed smoker. I'm getting more and more into soccer. You know, I'm into the party scene. I love the party scene every weekend essentially is let's go get wasted. Let's go to a party. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I still remember, yeah. I still remember the first party it was at. It's like, uh, it's like a scene out of dazed and confused, you know, that, you know, <laughs> it was in the woods somewhere. There was, you know, a big bonfire, you know, all the, the freshmen and the senior, you're feeling like you're all right. I've made it in the world. And definitely like a Matthew McConaughey hanging out. No, I was like a little freshman dude, and I, I remember just thinking, wow, what a wild night, and driving back in the morning, and I don't know. I think we had all these blankets with us because it was cold, and we had this bizarre, like, well, if we take these blankets home, we're going to get caught. So we're like throwing blankets out of the window, like driving home in the morning, but it's a very, <laughs> it's a, it's a vivid memory in my mind. So again, the kind of party scene, I chased that for a while. Um, kept partying through high school and, you know, college was coming up. Like, you know, that's what you have to do. And I didn't, again, I never really learned how to, to try because everything was just coming so easily to me and I took it for granted. Um, so like college, you have to fill out applications for and shit. And, uh, I was like, no, they're going to come for me. And I was being recruited for soccer and, uh, about a handful of schools. So again, uh, I didn't have to like apply to college. <laughs> you know, I was brought on recruiting trips and paid to go out, visit university, stay the weekend, nice. see if I like it. 
And like, you know, and of course, every time I went there, I was like, let's go get fucked up. Yep. Like, let's drink and let's drug. And at this time, again, it was, uh, you know, weed and, uh, and alcohol. And this was in my junior year. Um, and so I'm going on these trips. And uh, yeah, I remember actually one of them was a college in Canada. And the Canadian drinking age is 18. So it was like, I never forget the coach was like, we're going to go out and have a beer after this. And I was like. Yes, like sign me up. <laughs> this is the one. Like I know where I want to go to school. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't have go going there, but uh, I remember having those thoughts in my head. Like, yeah, I can drink it as an eighteen-year-old. Like priorities taken care of. So, anyways, uh, continuing on, uh, you know, like I did ridiculous things. Like I, I got into the music festival scene, like my junior year, and. I somehow like convinced my parents because my grades were good and I was doing okay. Like I could take a week off of school and go to some music festival in Tennessee as a junior in high school with my friend. And we like drove out there and went to it. And there I got into like hallucinogenics and psychedelics. So I was doing a lot of like mushrooms and LSD for the first time there. And then I found ways to get it when I came back home. You know, I remember that it was all that festival was just a drug festival. It wasn't I enjoyed a lot of the music, but it was all like, let's get messed up and then go listen to music. Oh, yeah. And and, and on that, I remember the third day we were camping next to these kids from Penn State. Everyone just being so befuddled that two 17 year olds are at this festival by themselves. (laughs) Like, who let you come here by yourselves? And um, so we were camping next to a bunch of college seniors and. They started drinking at like nine in the morning one day. And I think they filled a watermelon full of tequila. They were just eating this watermelon, having a grand old time. Like <laughs> life was great. Ten in the morning, and it's like five degrees in the Tennessee sun. And I remember getting so sick, and I passed out. <laughs> and I missed a whole day of shows, and they came back like eight hours later. And I was just, I looked like the Wicked Witch of the West. Like my legs were just, you know, like where her legs are pinned under the house. I was just like halfway in my tent. And that's all I had moved in eight hours. I got burns. I swore off tequila. I said I'd never drink tequila again. That didn't happen. But (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, you know, all those lovely feelings. I just, I wasn't learning anything. So I go through senior year. Now I'm doing... Lot, you know, again, party scene, drinking. I actually found, you know, I, I began to find people that would deal marijuana in heavier quantities, I guess is a good way, to, politically correct way of saying it. And, you know, and I would kind of purchase larger quantities and <clears throat> sell bits and pieces to kind of break even, if that makes any sense. I, I wouldn't say I was a, a drug dealer, um, but I was willing to share. Is it like a recreational drug provider? <laughs> yeah, I guess that. Yeah. <laughs> somebody somebody shared a meeting one time. It was uh, <laughs> my friend also gave away drugs for money. <laughs> so, <laughs> <such> a- <laughs> I was like, well, that's that's just the best thing ever I've ever heard. So, um, so this is like a T-shirt. <laughs> yeah. I also give away drugs for money. (laughs) Not a drug dealer. Um, So (laughs) I'm doing like all these things in the party scene. And uh, 
So college is on the horizon. Grades are still good. Senior year, I just like didn't give a shit. <laughs> like you know, like I put in my work. I felt like the dues had been paid, so I started slacking off, admittedly. Um, and then I got a scholarship and an opportunity to go to New York University, NYU, and uh, play soccer and get like one of the best educations in the country. So again, I thought that was pretty cool, and I didn't really have to do much to get it. So I said, sure, let's let's do this. And I had been on my trip to the Big Apple and. I didn't know much about New York City, actually, as <clears throat> as uh, confident as I was and as much as I could lead you on to think I did. But uh, So I was kind of like getting into something I really didn't know too much about, but how could I pass up an opportunity to go live in New York City as an 18-year-old? Oh, yeah. So so, so I uh, I signed up for that. So I started, I started, uh, started NYU immediately because anyone that has ever lived in New York City – Thanks. Because you have lived in New York City, you're better than everyone. So I totally add this to my ego and kind of walk, you know, just kind of walk around. I'm a college athlete living in New York City. I'm going to school. What's up? What do you do? Like, so that's kind of like I would say that would that's my air of arrogance. Um, well, kinda, in, in your defense, I've never met one New Yorker that didn't think he was the shit. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I wasn't even native, you know. I was a naturalized worker, but uh, yeah, I, it's just you know that is the way. That's absolutely. It's like the persona you got to carry around. So I fell right into that. Um, you know, I wasn't I wasn't brought in thinking I was going to start on the soccer team, but there was an injury. I got a couple games in, and uh, and then all of a sudden I was a I was a starter. So you know, like <laughs> I remember. Uh, walking around Manhattan and like walking around blocks and you know just random people on the sidewalk you just know who you are and now again just that just fed my ego and uh, so college went along and my first year I actually did okay like I got I think I got I was on the dean's list I I wasn't really messing around uh, I would get obliterated from Thursday to Sunday. You know, so I could take care of my school shit. Yeah, but Thursday through Sunday, I'd, I you know I'd get obliterated. And during the season, I was very, I would say that year I was pretty disciplined because I was um, trying to kind of break into the squad and still taking it seriously at that time. And so you know, for about three months of the year, it was or four months of the year, I was all right, well, I'll just drink occasionally. You know, I'd cut off marijuana due to drug drug testing and any other drugs for that nature because I was worried I'd get a drug test, which could happen. So anyways, so we, we have a fairly successful first season. I go through my first year and I get A's and start thinking about what we're doing in the, the summer. Originally, I was going to stay in New York, but like a friend called me and she's like, this is one of the friends that – uh I mentioned earlier that like grew was born where I was born and then moved to where I moved without talking to each other. So she's like <clears throat> my friend Jade, she's like, We're thinking about going to Martha's Vineyard for the summer and I was like, Oh yeah, like what's going on there? And she's like, I don't know, I just heard it's like the place to be if you're a college kid. So I was like, All right, let's this sounds good. <laughs> and it sounds like a party also. Yep. I'm in. Um I remember in one day, I like took a train from New York to my house in Connecticut, got a car, 
drove to Massachusetts to Cape Cod, took a bus to a ferry, got on a ferry, found a job at this restaurant, took the ferry back, took the car, got on a train, went to New York. And then I got fucked up that night. I just, I just like remember I had to get back to the city so I could go out because it was like a Saturday night. But Impressive. I, I, yeah, it was. Yeah, we're we're pretty determined people, right? If we, if we have an objective in mind, yes, we're like <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so I, I secured this job in this restaurant and I started cooking. And you know, cooking like uh, I had always been doing it. I have pictures of myself when I was four years old with like a chef's hat on, apron, etc. And um, it was a passion. My father managed a restaurant, so it ran in the family. And uh, so I started. I did that for the summer. And that summer, I just you know, I kind of went out of control. I uh, there was a guy around who had mushrooms a lot, so I was eating a lot of mushrooms. Pot. We would just have this bucket that lied on our coffee table with uh, <laughs> like the bottom of a milk carton um, cut off, which turns into a gravity bong, and it would just sit on the coffee table. And like we'd casually just like like bong in a beer, like you know, uh, <laughs> it was ridiculous. Like, but we were having the summer of our lives, yeah. Yeah. being reckless. How I didn't, how I didn't get a DUI or kill myself that that summer is just ridiculous. You know, that was summer. I I was I was still underage. You know, I had a fake ID. I got a fake ID in the city, so I'd like buy things and. um I'd you know buy all the beer and I thought I was the cool guy and I could buy beer for girls and you know girls were definitely coming into the picture again I didn't really have any trouble finding girls it was just like I couldn't maintain a relationship like it's been a story of my life <laughs> but um so lots of girls that summer lots of drugs we just partied like rock stars I met my future uh sister-in-law so my brother's wife my brother and I again weren't that close, but he like didn't tell me, so he didn't really mention how like into this relationship he was with this girl, and he's like, "We're coming over for the summer, like to Connecticut. We'd like to see you for a day." And so they come up to the the vineyard, they take the ferry over, and at the same time, my my friend Jade is like playing this massive party, and it's a small island, uh, so word gets around quick. And this just like turned into a crazy party. There was just uh, hundreds and hundreds of people in our little rental log cabin. Nice. And I, and I yeah, I know it was in uh, a lot of crazy things going on, like drug use everywhere and drinking. And it, you know, it made my brother very uncomfortable. And you know, I, I had uh, said he could sleep in my room and stuff, and obviously that was off the table because there was people not even myself in there I, I, I don't even know where i slept but uh but anyways they like ended up sleeping on the deck that night and long story short a couple of years later or a year later like you know i was going to visit them in florida you know he told me this story now when i was sober he's like you know when you came to visit that first time because they had just gotten engaged she was like can can we leave him alone <laughs> And like at first, I was like, "That's that's hilarious! Like that's so funny!" And and now I kind of get it. <laughs> like, like I was a train wreck, and I just didn't see it. I was just so so. Yeah, that was how I met my sister in law. So, Man, yeah, yeah. I didn't didn't know. I didn't get much of a heads up. But uh, so so that's that summer. You know, everything I'm drinking at work that starts. 
it's you know I'm still eating bottles of wine and champagne mimosas throughout the day. Restaurants are pretty good for drug addicts and alcoholics. I remember. Uh, I remember my first job was in uh was washing dishes and I was like 15 and they 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 kept all disappearing at certain times during the night. They would say staff meeting. <laughs> Finally, I'm like, what the fuck is this staff meeting? And everyone just went in the walk-in fridge and smoking a blunt. So <laughs> like, oh, these are my people. <laughs> yes. So I was attracted to that. Like even, you know, with a good education going and probably where I should have been doing like career oriented internships and whatnot, I was like, well, I want to be like, <laughs> you know, I want to go in this industry because it's all, you know, the, you know, sex, drugs, rock and roll. Yeah. Yeah. So. I mosey along doing that. I go to my sophomore year. I'm coming home with a lot of cash. Or I'm going back to New York, rather, with a lot of cash. So I'm not home at all that summer. I go to Martha's Vineyard. I'm like a, a day at home. And then I'm right back in the city for preseason. And I have a lot of cash saved up because I <laughs> I don't know how I did that. But <laughs> I did it. Um, <laughs> I, I, I worked a lot. I worked like 14 hours a day, but I was drunk half the time and high. So... Dude, were you, you were making tips though, right? Uh, no, I was working in the kitchen, but it was like a very good paycheck. <laughs> and I found like lots of odds and ends. And oh, I, I could do a whole podcast on that summer. Okay, I got you. I got you. But, I want, but I, I want, I'll spare you the details. Um, so go back, sophomore year, start preseason. And I get introduced to cocaine. And I really like it. And, you know, within like a couple months i'm like severely addicted to cocaine and i was able to kind of garner up the self-will to stop that and um it was because of the soccer team soccer team was doing really well we were having a historic year went to the ncaa final four you know i was kind of the poster child that year so i was like shit like i have to stop this because if i get a drug test and i fail it like i can't let my team down so I was actually able on my own will to stop and that carried on until we went to the final four and the season was over. And then I went right back to cocaine and um, throughout this, like, you know, my grades started actually suffering. Like I was not able to just do what Chris did and get A's. There was like work and really smart people all around me. You know, I was starting to realize that, that I was this uh, small fish in a big pond now. You know, that scared me because I, I, I never really I never had to ask for help. So this was all new to me. So, you know, I reacted by continuing to use cocaine habitually, smoke marijuana, just keep going along the whole time. You know, I'm like got this facade that everything's good. We're having this awesome year with soccer, I'm leading the team, the country. I'm, I, I was a uh, second team All-American that year and. And secretly, I'm just dying inside. I'm like withdrawing from classes. I get to my second semester. I think I failed another class. And of course, like they're like, a lot of people reached out and they're like, you should take a semester off, like get yourself together, yada, yada. You should come home for the summer. Well, I know what's best. Um, I'm going to stay in New York this summer. I'm going to do a summer session. That way, like I can get back on track to graduate with all my friends and and nobody's going to know what's going on. No. no. So, so like, this is like what I'm conjuring up. That summer, 
I, I worked at a restaurant in New York. Um, I was bartending and, and all like New York, you can go to a bar 24 hours a day. It's pretty awesome. And, um, you know, I got super into cocaine. I was just doing a lot of coke, a lot of drinking that summer. I passed my summer courses at the detriment that I was progressing in my illness and my addiction. So I didn't go home. I didn't get grounded with, you know, people that cared about me and loved me. And I keep going and I go to my junior year. My junior year, I was just like full-blown addict. Uh, couldn't stop. Like, whereas I got into the soccer season and I knew I needed to stop because drug testing, I was just like, well, fuck it. Like, if it happens, it happens. And, you know, I had fake injuries. I, you know, kind of half be there. And I was, again, I dropped a couple courses and, you know, I didn't have that great of a season Everything was suffering, and uh, again, suggestions to take a time out, go get some help, etc. I was like, no, no, because like, if I did something, like, like everyone's, I'm going to have that question, like, what's going on? Like, well, where are you? So I just pressed on. In my end of um, junior year, end of my fall semester, they give me, and that they tell me that I'm on academic probation, which essentially means that I need to hit a certain GPA, or they're going to dismiss me essentially i just like i knew i was walking the plank like so i continued on into my spring semester and i you know i didn't even give it a go like i just wasn't attending classes i wasn't doing anything i was just partying and then sleeping off the partying is the best way i can describe it and i'm not really telling anyone what's going on my parents kind of found out because they heard about that and um they were surprised because i never talked to them because <laughs> You know, I just kind of internalized everything. So needless to say, I I do get academically, academically dismissed after my junior semester. And, oh, like I wouldn't even tell my folks what's going on until like the paper came in the mail. It was like I had to wait for this like certified mail package to come before I would say, oh, yes, this actually. Yeah, that that did happen. <laughs> it was like, oh, man. Yeah, it was like. You know, the reality of the situation didn't set in until, like, that happened. That was a big moment for me that, like, I never truly recovered from because that was a situation where I couldn't do something and I needed help and I had failed at something. And it was just, like, all these things were very new to me. And I, you know, I was in I was in disarray for sure. Like, what happened? And I was, I had lots of false pride and remorse and shamefulness that... You know, I would drop all my friends that I had in university, all these people that genuinely cared about me and were just asking how I was doing and am I okay because <clears throat> I didn't show up for my senior year and I didn't tell anyone. And my response to that was to run away and just like fall off the earth because like I can't tell you what's going on. You know, it's nothing good to talk about. Right. So I was just continuing to hide it and – and I lost a lot of friends because of that, because I just couldn't face my own failures. So I try to like regroup. My parents say they'll let me live at home if I go to therapy. And so I go to therapy and I give that a try. And I walk in there with a lot of preconceptions and not being open-mindedness. I'm like, yeah, I smoke a joint here and there. You know, occasionally I'll have a beer. <laughs> And then I get pissed because this guy's not helping me, and I'm, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm not really giving him the opportunity to, and I'm not really telling him half the truth. And they try to put me on antidepressants, 
and they upped the dosage and I don't really feel it's working. So I just stopped taking it and uh, never really gave that a, a chance and kind of just like, you know, just like, all right, well, I'm not doing this anymore, but I'm still living here. And the agreement <laughs> was not an agreement after a very short period of time. So I need to work. I start working. Um, again, I go back to the restaurant field. I'll start working this job, um, bartending, serving, etc. And uh, I'm drinking a lot. Like, uh, you know, I would do doubles and I'd have a double shift. So I'd like work from 11 to 1.30 or 2 and then come back in like at 3.30 and then work till close. And I would go out to like another bar or restaurant nearby and I'd go like have four shots and then smoke a joint and then go back to work. And like I thought this was like cool and we were just partying and it, it occurs to me now that that is like clear alcoholic. Like people don't go and show up to work drunk, but I was able to perform very well in the job. You know, I made a, I was making a lot of money cash in hand at the end of the night. I uh, I was into whatever drugs I could get my hand on, but during this time period, <clears throat> I got really into ecstasy and LSD. I would say just about every night for the next year, year and a half, I would go straight from work. I'd continue drinking at the bar, but I'd go like pick up some some E from the dealer first, and I'd drop E. You know, I'd go to the bar, go to the bar, and then I'd drive home. So. Um, after about eight months of doing this or whatever, inevitably I get in a car accident at three in the morning, told the car, call the cops, etc. You know, I come, I'm claiming, you know, the go-to alcoholic alibi from where I'm from is that a deer, a deer was in front of me and I swerved and I didn't, didn't hit the deer. I was like, you know, I was a wreck. I was crying and just a, a wreck. And I had to call my mother to come pick me up. And she was, and they, I think their officer said something like, I think you learned your lesson tonight. Cause they asked if I was drinking and I said, yeah, just a beer, which is always a lie. But, um, and I didn't learn my lesson cause three months later doing the same shit and I'm about a mile from my house at like three thirty in the morning, flying on E drunk and a tree runs into my car and <laughs> <laughs> Was that the story? <laughs> I, I like to describe it as as such. Oh yeah. my god! Uh, but honestly, I'm like lucky that this one I should have been I don't know, more hurt than I was. But I hit a pretty big tree. You know, the seatbelt keeps me in, and got a big, big bruise from the seatbelt. And I remember like having my 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 bowl, my marijuana bowl, and I was like throwing it in the woods and like. God damn it, like this is it. Like I can't do this anymore and uh I'm done with this. And I just left the car there at three thirty in the morning, put the hazard lights on. It's just like wrapped around a tree. I walk somehow just walked out of there and I walk about two miles to my, my parents' house and <laughs> I wake them up and I'm like, I got in an accident and they're like uh, and they knew they're like my father kept saying like what are you on like you haven't just been drinking like you're on something and it was the e because I probably my jaw was probably shaking uncontrollably yeah um <clears throat> it's like well it's like you can't just like walk away from an accident like you know that's a crime like we're calling the cops and 
they called the cops. I called AAA <laughs> to get the car towed. And again, just by some sort of fate, the cops never showed up. And the AAA showed up and they towed it without the cops being there. And I walked away, like no repercussions of what I had done that night. No DUI, etc. So now they say if you're going to keep going here, if you're going to keep living here, you have to go back to therapy. Right. So I give it a go. And I try some antidepressants. They had me on like Wellbutrin or something. And uh, I'm telling half the truth. So they didn't really have much of a shot to help me again. And uh, I take the Wellbutrin. I get an allergic reaction to it. And I'm like, again, not for me. Not doing this. Um, and I keep kind of going along and now I'm unemployed because I say, basically I'm like now like kind of like how I thought getting out of New York would get me better. Like I was like, well now I clearly, clearly the problem is the restaurant industry and the nightlife. Like (laughs) that is clearly the problem here. So I'm going to get out of that. So I quit my job and, um, now I'm just kind of like bumming it. Like, you know, I have some money. And uh, just like left over, but I'm not not working. I think I try. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna try to go back to school. So I enroll in one of the state universities, and like, oh, you know, I kind of half tried that. There were some classes I liked, and the ones I didn't, I just didn't show up to. <laughs> so it didn't go well. Um, you know, I was just getting high all the time. Still smoking weed. Like I said, I never would, and I was still, you know, drinking. Um, I'd cut the cut the e out because I thought that was a problem, and uh, I start essentially. I'm not working. I'm going to school. It's been a few months now, and I I find like somebody who has more drugs, and I want them, and it's a good connection. And I what I start doing is I start stealing. Um, like my parents had like given me their debit account one night to go get a pizza and I just took note of the <clears throat> took note of the numbers and uh and then at night I would grab a car, go out to the ATM, try to take inconspicuous sums of money and about a couple of months, few months later, they like sat me down. They're like, like, is this you or cause if not we're gonna we're gonna tell them to launch an investigation and, and it hadn't occurred to me that they are <laughs> video cameras at every ATM. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they talk about in the A book about being cornered in Bill's story. Like I felt so cornered there. I was like, I can't like, and I couldn't lie my way out of this. Like, you know, I could lie my way out of anything. Um, that's what I did. I manipulated people. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, I think I said no at first and they said the thing about the ATM. So I was like, Oh, like, yeah. And I remember, like, my mom was crying. My father, I'd never seen him cry before, but he was. And he was like, you gotta get your shit and get out of here. <sighs> so I packed up my car. I lived in my car for, like, a week in some commuter lot. And it was miserable. And I remember I found some, like, odd job, like, catering or something. Again, I went back to the restaurant industry. And... <sighs> I tried to get that job and I finally kind of let go of my false pride and told uh, a couple friends, really good people that have been kicked out of the house and like, I need a place to stay and they let me go stay in their spare room 
for the summer without paying and stuff. So I kind of get it together and things were good. And I was around really healthy people and it was going okay. And, you know, I was just drinking and smoking pot. And finally I gathered up enough money. I found a friend, another friend within this like group that was looking for a place to live. And we got, we rented a house together at this point. I, uh, I kind of get in like one of the more serious relationships I was in with this girl, um, Laura, and we start dating and seeing each other and she's a musician and she's a bartender and likes to drink and she doesn't you know like do drugs like I do but at that time I was like you know I was just I was back to drinking and smoking weed and I thought everything was going okay and I got a job <clears throat> at a Hartford Financial and it was like you know a real salaried position I was getting really great benefits etc like things were like looking good and then about two months into this job, something new happens in my life. She 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 breaks up with me. And I had never the girl never broke up with me before. So again, like me not knowing knowing how to handle rejection or failure, like I was like totally taken aback because it was the one time where you know, I kinda called it the fizzle. I would be with a girl for a while and then I kinda just like lose interest and fall off the planet. Um <laughs> And I, you know, I thought it was like cool, but it was just because I, I was so full of bullshit that I was like making up so many lies about myself that at some point, like I was gonna, it was gonna kind of self implode on itself, and I had to get out of there. So I did the one thing I knew how to do, which was run. Yeah. But with this girl, it was different. So she breaks up with me, and that's like green light to go nuts. And uh, I think what I did was uh, I went on, uh, I went on Craigslist and. I discreetly like made posts to find a drug dealer. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. So, so I found a, my Coke dealer on Craigslist <laughs> and I swear to God, if he answered the post and, and I sent him an email and we met up and I started doing Coke again. And from there I was doing it every single weekend cause I had this job. So I was like, Oh, I'll drink and, you know, smoke weed throughout the week. I was just doing the coke all the time and um you know that weared on my relationship with my roommate you know that lasted about a year and we were good friends and you know he didn't drink he, he didn't drugs you know you know so I again I always hid this from people didn't know I didn't participate like I'd get a couple grams of coke and I'd lock myself in my bedroom and do the coke like that was the fun part of it and of course it always was yeah, you know, come up with plans how I'm going to save the world tomorrow. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, that's how I use drugs. Um, you know, the E was a little different. I went to the club, the party scene, and a lot of uh, girls and whatnot. But, you know, the coke, I just, like, I hid because I thought it was dirty and, like, you know, that I didn't want to share with the people around me. Um, so I do that. I move into another place. Uh, that's still going on. I don't know. I'm just like super depressed. So I actually, I start, um, I start using prostitutes. And, um, so I, I don't know like where that even came from. It was more so, you know, when I, when I think about it, it was like, cause I was hiding all the drug use from people and yes. yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't be myself. I was like looking for somebody I can. All right. Well, you know, this is what I was looking for. Cosigners kind of, 
um, <laughs> to get myself around and be like, oh, well, I can use drugs and we can hang out. I, I know. <laughs> All right, sweet. But I have to pay you for your time. Um, so, <laughs> so I started doing that and, you know, drugs are heavily involved and, you know, this is a weekly thing. I'm like a weekend warrior at this point and it's bleeding more and more into the weekdays. And, uh, there was just one night I was saying like 2013 that couldn't get, couldn't get any more Coke that night. You know, we'd stay up just dialing the dealer time and time again. Just like, you know, it'd just be like, I'd be up all weekend and, uh, we couldn't get it, but we could get crack cocaine. So, and I'd seen it, I'd seen heroin and all that stuff. And for whatever reason, up until that point, I hadn't done it. But I was like, I want to try it. And like that, I got addicted to crack cocaine. Um, so in place of the the Coke, it was always, can I get crack? And, um, you know, I smoked a lot of crack and continued to patronize the, the women. I lost a lot of friends. The people I was living with, you know, I would start, like, um, I just do things I shouldn't do, like, borrow their car when they're out of town and uh i do i do ridiculous things like drive to boston to go pick up drugs and stupid things um but i was using and using and using more like i couldn't get enough of the crack like i got paid bi-weekly and i remember i remember on that friday on that payday like my hands would be it'd be like 9 a.m and they'd be balmy and sweaty just because i knew i was gonna go get off like right after work and sure enough, like that's exactly where I went, and I would do that. Um, so through the midst of this all, I get a dog. Um, he's this like lab pit bull, joy of my life right now. His name is Jordan, probably saved my life. But I get this dog, and I'm thinking like he's also gonna like save me again. Like I'm gonna be a great dog owner. I'm an animal lover. Like I can't deny the innocence of animals. They don't have a voice for themselves, but the drugs, like they all honestly, they made me kind of a shitty owner, but you know, I, 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 yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he got fed. Like I would feed my dog before I fed myself, no doubt. And I'd make sure he get the best food, but you know, and he'd be so happy to eat it every single day. Um, and, you know, he would lift my spirits even. Like, he loved me when I couldn't love myself, um, for sure. But, you know, I just, like, physically I was just a wreck. Like, you know, alcohol and drugs take a huge toll on your body. You know, I'd gone away. I'd gotten away from being super healthy and doing all these running activities and just wasn't doing anything. You know, I was very uh, sedentary, I would say. And, you know, the job was in a cubicle. I was making really good money. And they kept promoting me. Like, like you know, again, it was back to, like, kind of the old Chris where I was doing half half work and, like, excelling and winning all these awards and promoting and promoting. And I was with the company for four or five years, and um, they just kept promoting me. I think within the four or five years, I got four or five promotions. <laughs> and uh, I'll never forget, like, the last year, they my coworkers voted me best known by his coworkers. <laughs> I was just, I would just giggle to myself because, like, you guys don't even know. Like, you don't know what I do. Like, I'm dying of death on the inside. And oh, man. I'm just like this 
I'm a I'm a crack addict at this point. And um, you know, everything's going on. You know, I was around a lot of heroin use too and like that scared me. I always thought I was like gonna be the one driving somebody who nodded off and hit their head on the toilet or something to the accident. So there's many times I wondered if I even have fun while I was doing it because I became so paranoid while I was strung out on crack. Needless to say, I tried heroin. I didn't prick myself, but I I snorted a few times for whatever reason. That never stuck. I just I threw up. I was lethargic. I couldn't get up. I think the thing was is I couldn't like actually physically get up to take care of my dog. Where on the crack, I was like good to go. I could still walk around and you know be strung out. Lots of energy. So, yeah. So like you know, I just like I just did it and uh, didn't do that, but I kept on with it. About a year before my ultimate bottom, I used to go to the, my parents too. Like you know, throughout these four or five years of me keeping this job and all the places to live and getting the dog, etc. Like they think like. <laughs> All right, it's finally like he finally got it together. So I we used to go over there, take like an hour and a half drive over to their house on a weekend skit. Uh, we'd have dinner and you know catch up. I'd bring the dog there, etc. In this one particular weekend, there was a just a crack pipe in my car. Like my father went to go move it. Oh man! And he finds it, and you know, like right then and there, they're like, "You need to like get help." Like. I'm like, no, it's fine. It was just a one-time thing. Like, it's like a friend's, like, you know, like what kind of friends smoke crack? You know, two tries crack once. Nobody. (laughs) All these ridiculous things. Dude, seriously. And they're just like pleading with me to get to rehab. And I'm just like, well, of course I can't. You know, and I had like full great benefits. I would have paid for it and insurance. And they're like, you know, I'm just like, if I go, like, like, you know, what am I going to say if I'm gone for 28 days? Like, you know, just holding on, guarding that. I was guarding that ego, like, you know, like a pit bull. I just wouldn't let it go. You know, I thought that I had the world fooled. And a lot of people I did have fooled just because I didn't let you in. If you got to a certain point, you got too close, just like all those girls in these relationships I had, then you got let go. And I ghosted. Like, that's just how it had to be at this point. Because the only people I would really hang around with in drug use were the prostitutes. And I ended up, so towards the end here, you know, I'm wasting all my money on this. And I'm still trying to keep a roof on my head, et cetera. And, you know, I start like driving around these girls for drugs. So I would do that. And I'd be able to like maintain my addiction without having to pay for more than I could afford. And, you know, I would use more and more dealers. I remember I'd take my dog with me in the car when I'd meet a new dealer and stuff. Like, he'd, like, protect me in, uh, you know, some shady situations. Like, uh, South End of Hartford all the time. I remember gunshots going off. And, like, rather than getting out of there, just, like, staying and smoking the crack. And, like, insane situations. It was just getting more and more insane. And I just couldn't stop. And I would just say, I'm going to stop. And I can't do this. And I have to pay this bill. And it's like, it's this out-of-body experience. I just blink my eyes. And there I would be again. And things were just closely, you know, very uh, fastly closing in on me. And, you know, the last year was just a terrible year. 
you know, I should have taken the advice, but it just kept going down and down. And towards the end, I'm still doing okay in work, and I, but like, I don't know, I just like couldn't muster the courage to get up one day, and I just was like, I'm just going to stay home. And we had just gotten our assessments at work. These people were going to give me a ten thousand dollar bonus if I, which got paid out in like six weeks. <laughs> and I'm just thinking. I just got like, you know, my eyes are watering because I know like I'm going to go on the run of my life here, but I just stay home and I stayed home for four consecutive weeks without calling my boss or picking up, you know, dodging phone calls, etc. I just ghosted my work and I knew I was going to be fired and again. It was like the dismissal from school. I just waited for that letter to come, you know, these four, those four weeks, oof. It was just consistent using, you know, I'd get out like three times a day just to let my dog out. But I was, you know, I was, towards the end, I was, I thought people were coming after me. I was looking out the blinds all the time and, oh, I was a train wreck. You know, I didn't want to see anyone. So I'd lost my job at this point and I wasn't talking to anyone, wasn't taking any phone calls for a while now. So my dad finally tracks me down, finds out where I am, and I'm, you know, I'm musing, and he just knocks on the door, and he's like, "We just wanted to make sure you were alive. You know, your mother hasn't slept in a couple months." <laughs> For me, that was about as good as a gun to my head, and you know, he was like breaking down, and you know, it was like I went to go spew the bullshit, and I just couldn't do it that time. I was just, just didn't have anything to say, and. And he left, and I was there, and I went on for about another two weeks. And I finally just said, I texted my mother, I said, I need help. I can't do this anymore. And I think I said, I think I'm bipolar or something's going on here. I wasn't sure what an addict or an alcoholic was at that point in time, but I just said, I need help. And a God shot. So I'm looking at the Huffington Post that night, and uh, there's an article, it's, Low-cost treatment alternatives Americans are seeking addictions and alcoholic treatment overseas. And lo and behold, I'm reading this article, and there's a little, tit, you know, a little blurb about Costa Rica recovery. And I had lost my job, so in the states, when you lose your job, you lose your insurance. So I had no insurance. Luckily, what I did have over the four or five years is I had a 401k, a retirement savings. And as a 28-year-old, I emptied that out and got enough money where I can't plug Costa Rica Recovery enough. Uh, you know, they definitely saved my life. But, you know, for what I could get for three months of treatment in Costa Rica, it was like I couldn't even get a month in the States without insurance. Right. You know, with insurance, maybe a month. It was unreal. So, you know, that's, you know, kind of my higher power organ in my life. And I was able to go to this treatment center and you know the allure of Costa Rica got me a little bit too I think yeah I was hesitant <laughs> I was like oh beaches and Costa Rica's the shit yeah. I'm gonna <laughs> yeah for a via. you know I'm gonna go on this like little vacation to a foreign country you know exactly what I need to change my life and uh you know that's not what it was you know San Jose is beautiful but it, you know it's it's no like there's no beaches like in San Jose man yeah there's no resort over there <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, the country is, you know, very dear to my heart, and I'm not trying to downplay it, but it was not what I was conjuring up in my head, you know, getting to the facility. I remember, you know, the last two weeks, my parents 
I put everything in storage. They're like, come stay with us because they thought I was going to run, not do this. But I paid for it and uh, got it all set up and I got there. <laughs> and I remember the guy who picked me up to go to rehab and he's like, so what do you do? What's your poison? And I'm just like so fucking offended. Like, what do you mean? What do you mean? What do I do? Like, here I am going to a drug rehab facility, still trying to like be on my guard. And I was like, yeah, I have, you know, I drink a little, like, like I smoke a little weed, etc. And then 30 minutes later, we did a urine test, and like, there it is. Like, it says here you do crack cocaine and maybe some other things. I think I was like taking my dog's medication at that time too. He got oh, dude. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, tremadol or something for his. Uh, wow. Yeah, thunderstorms and woof. Yep, I stole my dog's medication. That's pretty fucking sick. I remember telling my counselor that, and he's like, "I can't say I've heard that before." So <laughs> I go there thinking I'm going to do 30 days and come home, but you know, I learned all about addiction and alcoholism there, and. Allowing myself to approach it as an illness, as a disease, it's been, you know, very therapeutic and it's something that, you know, resonates with me. I was just a strong-willed person that never had many, very much failures in their life or things that I couldn't achieve on my own that when he approaches an illness as an allergy, a disease, then that's like, okay, well, I wouldn't treat, you know, a, a cancer patient, yell at them or be disappointed, etc., you know, it's like, all right, well, I need to like accept myself and then treat myself properly, which is when I was, you know, during part of the process at Coast Rica Recovery was you go to your AA, your NA meetings, et cetera. And um, within the first seven days, you got to get a sponsor and go to all activities so you can leave the house and use the internet. So that was some motivation. I remember the AA group at the zoo group and... I think it was like my fifth day or something. And I kind of like just got up and I walked over to Alejandro. And I don't even think I said anything, but he was like, yes, I'll be your sponsor. And I, was like, I, was like, I was like, great. I was like, what's your name again? Right. <laughs> so, uh, so I started working with him and, uh, I shared my story a lot. I mean, we just did, you know, it's a very, through your other podcast, you kind of describe the treatment center, but it's, you know, it's very structured during that 90 days. I got in the best shape of my life. I kicked all my addictions. I ran a half marathon in rehab, which was, you know, unreal. Yep. Uh, I started believing in the rooms. I mean, I was, uh, fake it till you make it. You know, I first meeting, I remember Paul was at the NA meeting and he was hogging me and giving me my chip. And then three months later, I would give him his new 24-hour chip. Yeah. Like, that's what the program is all about. It's like just full circle, things like that. But yeah, I was like, I remember this. I kind of get the program, but I don't get the spiritual side. I'm like, well, that's what the whole fucking program is. So so I'm a classic overthinker. I higher power thing had to come to me. There was one kind of aha moment. I was... (laughs) And maybe you remember him, but Panama Rob, he was at our clinic and it's like a dual diagnosis clinic. So it does psychosis and addictions treatment. And I think he was more on the psychosis side and he was so out of his mind when he got there and he was touching people's stuff and bringing things 
where he shouldn't, you know, just kind of like all over the place. And he scared me. You know, he scared me. I was starting to see through. I was about 26 days in myself or something. And I'm like, oh, God. And then they told me this guy was going to room with me. And I'm just like, oh, like, no, like, I've had enough of this. Like, this is it. And I'm outside around the pool at night looking up at the stars in San Jose. And I'm just like, motherfucking the world. And, uh, and it just occurred to me, like, Chris, damn, like, as much as you fucking be pissed about this, that guy is going to be sleeping in the bunk above you tonight. Like, get the fuck over it. It's out of your control. <laughs> and, and, you know, then I started to look at it like, this guy was put in my life for a reason to like teach me this. And, you know, that's out of my control and I can't control that. So, you know, why am I wasting the effort? And I took that a little bit. I hung on to it for dear life and I kept working it. I started working the steps with my sponsor. I finished my 90 day program. I was doing so well in Costa Rica and was you know, falling in love with the country and just having such a strong network there of, uh, recovery you know i decided i wanted to i thought it was in my best interest to stay there longer so i got a little apartment and stayed in costa rica and continued doing all the groups for another five six months six months you know i was able to i chaired meetings continued working on my steps i ghosted my sponsor so sorry alejandro if you're listening um, <laughs> I know. He used to tell me, Alejandro's my sponsor, too. He's like, have you heard from Chris? I, he sounds like he's doing good. <laughs> he looks good. That. Me, yeah, right. So I was getting so healthy. I got in so in, into yoga and just running. And like I said, eating healthy, food, nutrition, whatever. You know, kind of the way I saw exercises were, and still to this day, is where I get a lot of my meditation and, you know, centering myself. It's kind of doing a physical act of treating my body right and doing something that's going to take care of myself just as much as, you know, the meditation and the prayer is healing the inside. Just the way I look at it. So I like combining the two. But I got very, you know, I kind of got it, took it to an extreme. I got egotistical and narcissistic and, uh, you know, I'll say, you know, I kind of thought that like yoga and exercise could keep me sober, but... I kept going to the meetings, etc. You know, my time in Costa Rica was up. You know, at the warning of my sponsor, I still got I got in a relationship my first three months. It turned out, you know, it was okay. It was cordial. It ended when it had to end. I kind of see you now why after the fact they say that it's because in a relationship you begin to close down your network and you begin to rely on each other so much. And when you remove that that pillar then it's like, oh, how do I build this up again? And I can't say, like, when I stop moving, like, if I'm not making progress, then I'm going backwards. And it is so hard for me to get that ball moving again. I came back to Connecticut about seven, eight months clean. And I knew the first meeting I was going to when I stepped off the plane. And I found a group. And I kind of went through, like, a, well, you know, there's not that many young people. There's old people. Whatever, and I got yep. a sponsor. And I went to every noon meeting. And I wasn't working at the time. Costa Rica, I, I was able to get part-time jobs as an English tutor, and, and actually the clinic hired me. And I think working at Costa Rica Recovery 
seeing what I saw and some of the detoxes and <sighs> kind of like, you know, looking at yourself sitting in that intake chair, but looking at somebody else and just being like, you know, I was just as crazy as you were, but it's a very rewarding experience being able to help people and give back. So I came back home, man, I had a tough couple months. It got to a point where I was going to meetings every day. I had a sponsor and I was still sitting on my four step and it's like nine months in and somebody said something at a meeting. They're like, you know, like if you keep saying that you're going to do something and you're not doing it, you're lying to yourself. And I was so hell bent on honesty being one of my principles to live by and have integrity in my life that I had kind of had blinders on. I was like, I'm being honest with all these other people, but shit, I'm fucking, I'm lying to myself. Like I've, this has been on the list for fucking nine months now. Like what's up with that? So all these little things start to click. Like it works if you work it. Mm Mm-hmm. Faith without works is dead. Yeah. And I was sitting back waiting for the fucking miracle to happen, not doing shit about it. <laughs> yep. like, so I started working my program a lot better. I did the four step. I wrote a book and uh, we went over it. And the, my sponsor is this old guy named Bill. And uh, we have a real good relationship. And I, I kind of see it almost as like my grandfather kind of like living vicariously through him. Um, yeah. It's very cool. And, uh, you know, we meet once a week. We we always uh, we get some uh, dinner, and uh, we work on the step work. But you know, went through the four step: fear, ego, fear, ego. You know, I'm a very ego based person. I have a lot of fear, and I protect that with my ego. You know, that's that's the root of a lot of my flaws. Is that's what it is. So things are getting better. You know, my sponsor when I didn't have work here before I got work here, you know, gave me jobs to do. I've been blessed through the program. I have a great network today, people that check in with me. I'm working full-time now. I'm doing something I never in a million years thought I would have done, hanging out with people. If you had told me, these are the people I'm going to hang out with, you know. I like to say, you know, like all this was not part of my five-year plan. You know, like, like, you know, (laughs) things just don't work out the way I, you know, intend for them to. But I still, you know, progress, not perfection. I just continue to make these lists in my head and, like, well, I should have this, this, and this, and accomplish. And this, I get in trouble. I just got to live day to day because when I get out of that, when I get out of today, when I get out of the moment, I miss all these things. And, you know, I, I'm done. I'm tired of missing all this shit. I got to be present because, you know, it's like I could be looking for the girl of my dreams, but and if I'm looking everywhere for her, no, I'm not, I'm not centered today and she may be walking right by me. So I just live it day by day, man. You know, I believe in the the program. It's tough having a a father who was in the program now drinks. And you see that, and you know, we got chapters in our literature that say that doesn't happen. But you know, different strokes for different folks. You know, I'm a perfectionist. I'm an overthinker. So I just try to dumb it down. I don't think too much. You know, if I have a problem and I can't solve it. I better fucking hope that something greater than myself can. Otherwise, there is no hope. So that was basically how I dumbed down my third step. Like, Yeah. If I don't believe something greater than myself can fix me, then you know I might as well go off the deep end right now. So if it wasn't for my dog those last days and him getting me out of bed, you know, I would have taken the easy way out. But thank God for my dog today. And uh, he's here sleeping while I'm doing this interview. So he's definitely... 
He's with me. He's one of my higher powers for sure. I think that's all I got to share. Oh, I'm just blabbing on now. <laughs> <laughs> dude, dude, what a story, man. Like, it's unbelievable that you are alive today. Yeah, it is crazy. <laughs> and it's not the first time I've said these words to someone when I've heard someone share their story. And this pit of despair, this isolation, this self-centered fear, this absolute recoiling into the depths of hell. And it's not the first time I've heard somebody talk about how their dog saved their life because they cared more about this dog than they cared about themselves. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the dog, you know, I talked about it the other night at a meeting. It's like, as much as I isolated, the dog saw all. And, you know... It was probably just me, but you could see it in his eyes. He was just like, you know, you're better than this here. You know, we could be having so much fun together. But, you know, through it all, he loved me unconditionally. And you know, I, I live a daily immense to my dog, for sure. We take a <laughs> mile and a half hike every day, religiously, rain, sleet, snow, etc. You know, regardless of what that weather is, that dog is so happy. Like. <laughs> It's a lot of lessons I can learn from my dog. It reminds me of Fred's story, Fred D. And yeah. he talks about his dog that he named Cocaine. And uh, <laughs> he's on the fucking streets with the dog and just living in absolute misery. And yeah. he looks down at the dog and he goes, you know what? The dog doesn't deserve this. The dog yeah. doesn't deserve this, man. And he went to his parents and he asked for help. You yeah, know, it's just one of those. Yeah, God works in mysterious ways, and we do not listen. You know, we can have the entire world crumbling around us, and it takes something as pure because it is pure and Innocent. this unconditional love that you get from an animal, and it's indescribable. It's in those moments where you say, "If for no other reason, you know, he doesn't deserve this." Yeah. You know, you are their voice, and, and I think like a lot of addicts, alcoholics, you know, we're took me a while to accept it, but you know, we're good people. We're just making bad decisions, and uh, you know, a good person typically doesn't turn their back on an animal. There's something about the innocence that you just, for me, I just couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> that was a big thing. So God has to speak to you in the language that you're ready to listen to. And it's not going to come from your mother, and it's not going to come from your father, and it's not going to come from your friends. It just, for whatever reason, it just falls on deaf ears. But, you know, it needs to come from a place that, you know, or from an entity that doesn't speak, you know, a power greater than yourself. You know, uh, there's no question about it. I believe it. I believe it. So, wow, Chris, that was just incredible. And again, it's a miracle that you're alive, but the program that you have adopted and the way that you currently work your program and going to a meeting every day for the first year, that's what saved your life and it's changed your life. And so today you seek, you look to find a way to live a life more congruent with spiritual principles. And these are all terms and verbiage and rhetoric that I don't think either you and I ever imagined <laughs> we'd be saying you know, yeah. in our lives. Yeah, for sure. You know, the program has taught me a lot about differentiating spirituality and faith from religion. You know, I had such a wall built up against religion in my story. 
that I had to, you know, look at the difference in definitions between that terminology. And and I definitely, I'm not sure if I ever lose in my life right now. Maybe someday I will. I'm not closed off to that. But, you know, I definitely, I have faith. I have spirituality. I know there's much greater things and I see them every day that are forces in my life that are higher than me. I have multiple higher powers. You know, nature is definitely big for me. But yeah, I believe it, man. I'm, uh, I'm sold. I, you know, I had to fake it until I made it, but I'm glad I did. Yeah, same here, buddy. Same here. All right, well, let's start closing up, Chris, because we've already been on. All right, this, sounds this, good. This call for like two hours. So, um, oh, <laughs> that's a story, man. This might have to be in two pieces. Yeah, Chris, part yeah. one. Yeah, it would be like. Uh, yeah, it'll be like yeah, a long movie, the epilogue. All right, I love it. I love it. All right, so for the newcomer, I'm going to ask you five questions about your early recovery, and I want you to respond with inspiring and insightful answers you can share with the newcomers. Are you ready? Go for it. Let's do this. Number one, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? Uh, fear and ego. Yep, absolutely. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. That's usually, that. that's number one on most of our lists. Yeah, you know, a stigma of addiction and I'm just not being educated about addiction and alcoholism. I'm a huge advocate about that. I think had I known or was the preconception of that different, then I might have been more apt to say, hey, maybe that's me. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. All right, so then number two, at what point did you have that spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol for the first time, but had developed the hope that you could recover? I mean, I described the the moment of the kind of the spiritual kind of higher power moment at the pool with my roommate in rehab. That was definitely one. But, you know, just thinking back or, you know, for me, another big moment was the, you know, reading the text, the big book. And just it was like reading my biography. I didn't have to write it. It was already written for me. And, you know, not being able to deny that anymore. Absolutely. Yes. And it, it happened to me in the same way when I was in working step one. I was right in the middle of working step one and it was talking about manageability, internal and external unmanageability. And I'm going over this with my sponsor and I'm like, oh, my God, this is it. I totally get this. And it was one of the first times I'd gotten anything in so long, like it clicked and I went, yeah, dude, I'm so into this, and I just dove into the steps like right after, like I'm fiend. <laughs> it was fucking yeah. awesome. All right, so then, do you have a favorite book that you would recommend to a newcomer that you read in early recovery? Early recovery book. Yeah, I think I tried to keep my reading light. Can I suggest a non-recovery book? Is that yeah, right? absolutely. All right, so the one I read was uh, "Steal Like an Artist." Ooh. And it's all about the creative process. It's really short, and it's by Austin Kleon. Yeah, I don't know. It kind of helped me decipher some things in recovery and, uh, you know, work around, you know, help me make my own discoveries. I don't know. Perfect, perfect, perfect. All right. And then number four, what is the best suggestion you have ever received? <sighs> best suggestion is, uh, like, stop digging. <laughs> I know this one. I know this one. I haven't gone like far enough again. Like maybe my hole's not deep enough. It's like, well, stop digging. 
<laughs> I remember that one. How is it exactly that it goes? It goes something like, uh, fuck, what, how would, dude, I totally remember it. It's like, you know, when you realize that you're in, you're in too deep. Yeah. You know, stop digging. I think it was something like that. I just remember hearing it and going, dude, that's so awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. And if you could give our newcomers only one suggestion, what would it be? Just then, you know, if you're doing, 12-step program, I'll just say, you know, or whatever you're doing, just don't leave before the miracle happens. I mean, myself, I like everything immediate. I like it to be on my time, but fortunately, that's not the way our world works. So, you know, just write a list of all the things you like to do when you're sober, when you're clean, people you care about, because if you're an addict, you're an alcoholic like me, you will. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but somewhere down the line, you'll lose all that stuff again. So Beautiful. I love it, man. I love it. All right, Chris, thank you so much for sharing your amazing story with us, brother. And my pleasure, man. This was uh, it's a lot of fun. So It was. It was. Absolutely. I can't wait to get this out in, in the airwaves. I know our listeners, sure, yeah, the listeners are going to love this one. With get the- some sleep. Got to get back to farming tomorrow. Dude. No, dude. <laughs> the people Omar yeah no I hear you I hear you I hear you we gotta feed the world for sure shit I wanna come out and visit you for sure man like for reals like that sounds like an amazing place yeah it's a lot of fun man anytime you're in the northeast I'm in alright we have now reached the end of our show thanks for joining us and as we say here in Costa Rica pura vida pura vida Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then. The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program.